Good morning. Didn't you get the Hawaiian shirt memo for today? If you start wearing Hawaiian shirts, it's going to get warmer. So the problem is you're wearing all these jackets and we're getting more of this cold weather. I, uh, I know that um, all of us here this morning are filled with anticipation because within about 20 minutes ago, it was announced now publicly in Chicago that Scott Cagle is coming here to ABF, huh? Woo! And uh, so there's no escape now. It's public there. It's public here. And uh, be praying for them. They're still looking for housing. They're gonna, we have a little uh, update that maybe the condo that they had wanted that went to someone else, they dropped out. So maybe that condo's back in play. So we're, uh, we're looking uh, forward to all that's going to be happening there. This morning, we're going to talk about expectations. I'm in the middle of a series called Great Expectations. My friend, Len Sanukian, started us last week and talked about what a church should be as we expect and look forward to having a new pastor. But as we think about expectations, what are the things just in life that we look forward to, things that we can't wait until that time. I was thinking back through the life stages. When I was young, the greatest expectation was, oh, it's Christmas Eve. I cannot wait till the next morning. Anybody like that expectation? Yes, even some of us adults still like it. When you are expecting your first child, there are great expectations, and you're just praying for a healthy baby boy or girl. And you would think that would be the highlight of it in terms of parenting until you become a grandparent. And then there's even greater expectations uh, in terms of those grandchildren. There's expectations when you're starting a new job. How many of you have actually started a new job in the last two years? All right? And some of you may be starting over again next week. But um, in fact, I'm in that category soon. Great expectations about what God will do. When I was in college, I couldn't wait in 1976 to go to Urbana, Illinois and gather with 20,000 other college students for a missions conference. Great expectations. I thought about when my kids were younger, some of the things that they looked forward to uh, in sports, and some of you are in the middle of that. Uh, my son got to play in three different AAU state baseball championships. By the way, those expectations for kids are great, but if you're the father of the pitcher in the bottom of the seventh when the game's tied, those are not great expectations. That's major nail-biting, hiding somewhere and praying to God that the kid makes it through the inning. So we all have expectations, don't we? But as we think about our church... My time with you is coming to a close over these next few weeks, and in these last three weeks, I want to share my thoughts on expectations. Today, our expectations from a new pastor. I want to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll look at that. Next week, we'll look at what, we can ex what that pastor, what Scott, can expect from us. And then in my final week, I want to look at some lessons that I've learned from you here at ABF. Now, I know 
that there is a principle. I use it in counseling. I do it in marriage counseling, family counseling. All miscommunication is a direct result of differing assumptions. So what I'm going to try to do over these next three weeks is frame the assumptions about what is reasonable for us to expect from Scott, what is reasonable for Scott to expect from us as we prepare, prepare for his coming. So as we have done and is our tradition, would you stand with me as we read God's Word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard again. Verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Verse 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. You may be seated. And so as we look about what our expectations are on our new pastor, I want to suggest there are six things that we can biblically and righteously and hopefully be able to expect from him. The first comes out of verses 3 and 4, that he should be pleasing God, not man. He should be a God-pleaser not a man-pleaser. Now, I've got the Scripture up on the screen, and it'll there, be there behind me for a moment, and you're going to see there's a number of really interesting words in there that kind of frame what does it mean to actually please God. Before I give that to you, though, I want to just remind you the context of, of the Thessalonica church, because we're pulling this out of this one little passage, and normally I would teach through, you know, this whole book, but we're just going to look at this passage in its context. Remember, Paul had planted the church of Thessalonica on his third missionary journey, and if you want to read more about that, go to Acts chapter 17, and he makes a hasty departure. Some people believe that he actually only spent three weeks in Thessalonica, and this great church comes out of it. There is some debate among commentators and scholars whether it was really more than that or less than that, but the bottom line is Paul is commending the believers for their faith in light of the fact there's been some nasty accusations made about him and about his, quote, midnight departure from Thessalonica. And so that kind of fueled some of these expectations about who Paul is and what he was about. So he's actually telling you, this is what I actually did. And the first thing he says to us, and for our pastor coming, is that he needs to please God, not men. 
And he gives you, in, in contrast, kind of some false teachers and what they do and how they present the gospel and how uh, a true uh, Christ follower would. So I, I, if you see in the text there, first of all, his message was true, not from error. See? And if you're using your, your pen in your Bible, you can circle error uh, and impurity and deceit because we're going to contrast those three things that false teachers would do and we would expect our pastor, as well as Paul, what he did in opposite of that. So his message was true. It, was, it wasn't false. It wasn't self-deluded. And so these false teachers, and you can check that out in 1 Timothy 4 too, try to discredit Paul and accuse him of all kinds of false things. Number two, his manner of life was pure, not from impurity. His manner of life was pure, not from uh, impurity. And there's a connotation here in terms of purity that maybe there was a sexual connotation. In other words, uh, Paul was not about this worship of the sex gods of, of paganism, that this pagan worship often combined with sexual immorality was woven into the practices of the day. And he said, well, I have nothing to do with that. I do want to pause for a moment because moral purity, if there's anything that's going to sink a, a pastor, that's one of the areas that we have to just have our guards up against. We need to protect our pastoral staff and one another from allowing that to be a part of our experience. Now, I realize um, that's been a painful part of our past, and we lost a pastor here at this church years ago through moral impurity. And I just got to tell you, if we as a body aren't hyper vigilant to be careful to protect him and his family and all of our staff to be uh, having good safeguards in place. I remember when I was a young pastor in Minnesota, and the senior pastor came out with a policy on six standards for what he would call discreet conduct. And one of the ones was, you will not ride in a car alone with a woman who's not your wife or your grandmother. Well, it didn't say grandmother, but, you know, a family member. You can't just get a ride to the airport, you know, for the conference. Um, no eating alone um, in a restaurant with someone of the opposite sex. Um, we put windows in all of our doors and recommend that we might think about doing that here. Um, Nancy knows there are times where I've been for counseling. I say, hey, I need you to stay a little longer today because someone's coming in at five. I need someone out in that office. Or uh, some of you have noticed that if you wanted to meet with me, I said, could you bring a friend with you? So the three of us are meeting together. So I'm hyper vigilant about that. I know Scott will be hyper vigilant about uh, moral purity. And then thirdly, his method, see there, his method of ministry was authentic. Authentic, not by way of deceit. That that deceit word is the idea of diluting a wine uh, with water so as to fool the guests or making it last longer. And I got to tell you, in our today's culture and, and younger generations in this church, they can sniff out somebody who's not authentic. Authenticity and transparency is the rule of the day. Now, I got to tell you, part of that yeah, we're, we're pretty jaded, aren't we? Because we see so many TV preachers that are going, are you serious? Really? Do they really believe what they're saying? 
And I hope as you come to church every week that you don't come with this guarded, jaded, kind of like, oh, just because people out there are not necessarily authentic or transparent does not mean that your pastors and your staff are trying to do anything like what we see oftentimes on TV. And so I hope that, and I know, I just, what little I know about Scott and Adrian, I think they're going to be wonderful examples of authenticity and transparency. But as you think about the big idea of pleasing God, not men, that is easier said than done, isn't it? Because how many of you, and I'm going to let you vote on this, and so I'm not the only one that raises my hand, how many of you you want to be liked. You, you, I mean, bottom line, you would like people to like you. I'm going to wait a little longer to see if I get any more hands. <laughs> of course we do. Of course. We all want to be liked. And anybody who has been in leadership knows that that just isn't always going to be the case. And in fact, if we're going to please God first with our lives, there will be plenty of times where there will be unpopular decisions that a leader has to make. Give Scott a break. He's going to make a decision, I am guaranteeing you, in the first six months that somebody in this room is not going to like. And this is how it goes down. I can't believe that that pastor would take my ministry and say that maybe we need to reevaluate it. And then we talk to our friends. Did you know what Pastor Scott did? Do you know what he's going to do with the youth ministry? He's actually going to make them go to church. Oh, they're already in church. Yeah. You see, there's all kinds of things that he's going to have to take a look at, and we're going to be patient together with the elders as we work together. We can't please everybody. Think about Jesus. Did he please everybody? He certainly didn't please the Pharisees, did he? It reminds me of a, a quote by Harry Truman who commented on the importance of leadership and the idea of what polls would we take in leadership day. And Truman, I don't think he was actually a Christ follower, quite frankly, but he said the following. He says, I wonder how far Moses would have gotten if he had taken a poll in Egypt. (laughs) He goes on to say, what would Jesus Christ have preached if he had taken a poll in the temple? What would the Reformation have gone like if Martin Luther had taken a poll. You see, Truman says, if the polls are public opinion of the moment, if that's what really counts, then we are held hostage to popular opinion. We cannot be held hostage by popular opinion here, friends. We can be held hostage by one person and one book. The person, Jesus. The book, the Bible. That's what I want to be held hostage to, not being popular, not being swayed by the, the, the tide of popular opinion. So if you want to write a principle down somewhere in those notes, write this. We're asking Scott to be courageous. We're asking for courageous leadership, even if it's unpopular. Courageous, courageous leadership, even if it's unpopular. When I was reflecting, by the way, this week, I was suffering for Jesus for two and a half days in the Napa Valley. Someone had to do it. And I was speaking for a church there at a parenting conference. I spoke six times in two days, Friday and Saturday, but 
I got up real early, about 5.30 both mornings, and I was sitting in a guest house overlooking 160 acres of beautiful vineyards. And I'm telling you, if you can't meet Jesus there, you're not going to meet Jesus anywhere. <laughs> but as I was thinking about this and I was reflecting on my message, I was thinking, how many of my pastoral predecessors who were senior pastors in my previous churches, some of the things they had to stand against? And I pray that we would never, ever do this to our pastor here. Here's one that we experience. A couple of very high-profile givers in the church didn't like a decision that was made, and they essentially tried to blackmail the pastor and say, if you don't do it my way, we're leaving the church. And so, thank goodness our pastor said, see ya. There's the door. And didn't succumb to financial blackmail. Another pastor has been very, uh, that I worked with, was very careful to say, I'm going to teach God's Word, even though it would be easier to do something that would be a little more palatable to the masses. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that you teach the God's Word in a boring way that makes people go like, oh, please, when are we done? Let's get out of here. But so often declaring God's truth, there's going to be something that you say that's going to offend somebody. And if I'm walking around just tiptoeing, not trying to hurt your feelings and the Bible says it, I got to say it. Scott's going to be able to declare God's truth, and if he declares it, sometimes it's not going to feel good to you. Number three, not allowing the politically correct culture of our day to dictate the agenda of the church. And so we've got to kind of look at that. And so we have to have courage to proclaim the gospel, whether people like it or not, whether it's popular or not, and sometimes that causes us to have to make very, very hard decisions. I, I was really discouraged today. I wasn't going to say this, but I got to just say it. I was really discouraged that Tim Tebow says he's not going to go speak at First Baptist Dallas this April because of the church's position on a couple of things. You know, Louis Giglio doesn't get invited to pray at the inaugural because of his position theologically on certain things. And so, what does our culture value? Let's just make sure we understand what kind of vice grip we are in so when your pastor is declaring God's word, realize this is the tidal wave that's pushing us a different direction. Now, before I get too far down this road, some of you are going, okay, come on, John, but you don't have to, like, hate the culture, right? Absolutely not. God loves people who are far from Him. It's the Christians that sometimes get it mixed up. Who did He die for? Sinners. Are we those people? Yes. And so we're just holding out the breadcrumbs saying, hey, God forgave me come along on the ride. But look, this is what culture thinks important. I, I rarely have you do this, but I want you to turn to another text. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jer chapter, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. And this, my young Jedi knights here in the front row, this is what your high school and your junior high and your colleges are saying is most important. And you either have to say, I buy into this or I buy into God's word. Here's what the culture says is important. Look at verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man 
boast of his wisdom. I'll help you never forget what this passage means. Brains. That's what they think is important. Brains are intelligent. And let not the mighty man boast of his might. That's brawn. And for you ladies, beauty. All right? Mighty. And then let not a rich man boast of his riches. Brains, brawn, beauty, and bucks. That's what the culture says is important. Was God say that's important? Mm-mm. He says this, verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. By the way, I think loving kindness, check this out, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. You want to know how to engage the culture? That's the priority order that you do it. You don't start with the, with the hammer of justice. What does he start with? If you're going to engage culture, instead of doing this, you love, the, you love people. And then, as you're loving them, they realize that there's justice that is, and there's injustice in the world, and you begin to put your love into action, and you do things that even the world says, that is cool. I can tell you for a fact, on Tuesday, an entire staff at Agura Hills High School, and I think, this is so cool. We're eating for free, and this church brought us lunch. I think I better check this out. Believe me, I'll have plenty of invite cards in my pocket as I serve lunch to those teachers. And then, after you love people, after you're involved in writing injustice in culture, then, then let's talk about righteousness. There's plenty of time to be pure and righteous, but let's put it in the order that is winsome to the culture, not pounding the culture. So we please God first, and the principle is He's got to be courageous. Now, I got to ask you, you say, well, these are all kinds of expectations on Pastor Scott. Well, let me just throw it back to you. Every expectation we have of Him, could we not do a little checklist for ourselves today? How are we doing? Are we pleasing man or are we pleasing God? What is it that we're about? All right? Secondly, look at verse 4 through 6. He permits himself to be examined. See that? But God who examines our hearts, and then a little later, God is our witness. Bottom line is his life's an open book. He's transparent. He's accountable. Plato said it this way, the unexamined life is not worth living. And so it's God who examines our heart. We can't fool him. God is our witness. Now, he's, Paul's playing off an Old Testament uh, law there that it required in the Old Testament two or more witnesses to verify truth about a situation, which, by the way, if you look at the, as we prepare for Easter, that's why in Jesus' trials, they have to come up with a couple of uh, fake witnesses to testify against him. And so, Scott will need to be accountable to allow himself to be examined. Because, and by the way, any pastor who preaches on Sunday, your life's getting examined. You're, you're, people are watching you. They're watching your every move. I, I, I'll tell you, my reoccurring nightmare is that I'm going to be on a freeway in a less than godly mood. You know what I'm talking about? I think you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me just paint it clearly. I was 
I was in charge of an event with 1,800 junior hires a few years ago, many years ago, many dark gray, not gray hairs ago. And um, I was headed to uh, uh, the water park down in Laguna Hills. I can't remember the name of it. Raging, well, that's the one up in San Dimas, but that's the one in Laguna Hills. But the bottom line is there's 1,800 junior hires and their youth workers converging on this place. And this guy cuts me off as I'm trying to get off off ramp. And I just laid into my horn. I didn't say anything that I would regret, but I gave him a look that would kill. All right? He looks in my rear view mirror. I look in his rear view mirror. He pulls off. I pull off. He moves over. I go over. Now he's side by side. And I want to look at him, but then it dawns on me what if it's someone going to the event? I make a right, he then makes a right, I go down the street, he goes down the street, I make a right, he makes a right, we both pull into rage, or to the water park, I am wetting my pants. Because <laughs> I'm going to get in front of like 1,800 junior hires, and what if this is the youth worker, because he really didn't do anything wrong, I'm the one who did something wrong, I laid on my horn. <sighs> I would like to say that was the only time I've ever done that on the freeway that God has blessed me wonderfully with better patience. But we all have things that are a little bit of Achilles' heel in our lives. And so we need to be able to allow God and others to speak into our life and be examined. Now, he gives you a contrast in our text of the unexamined life. Look at the three words he uses, flattering speech, pretext for greed, and glory for men. So people who live that unexamined life, they come across with all this kind of flattering speech. Do you see it there? Uh, verses 4 through, uh, where am I here? Yeah, verses, end of verse 4 through 6, this flattering speech. They say anything they want so you'll get to like them or, or the, their self-interest will be kind of lifted up. Let me tell you something. Don't be wooed by anybody's rhetoric. If you're going to be wooed by something, be wooed by their righteousness. There are a lot of good talkers. People can, 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 can get a word out. But in the end, what's really happening in their life? Number two, uh, Scott's not coming with a pretext for greed. The little word there is a, to trick you, to cloak, uh, to cloak intentions. If you're greedy, you, that's going to come out. It, it won't last for long. People can see through kind of what your motivation is. Now, I got to tell you, this church is unbelievably gracious and generous. I have been on the receiving end of that, and I am forever, ever grateful. But any of us who are on staff knows we didn't go into the ministry to become rich. That's just not really part of the package. Now, we'd also, on the other hand, like to not have to take a vow of poverty, which we don't have to accuse anybody here of because this church is very, very gracious. And so, this pretext for greed, and we know how money can just dominate us, and especially if we're worried about paying the bills, and that's a tough thing. Howard Hughes was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said, of course, just a little bit more. Here's what God's Word says about money and, and contentment. Look, just write this down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain, 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. I know when I was a young junior high pastor, I wrestled a little bit being in my first ministry in Huntington Beach. It's the, the affluence of that area is not unlike kind of the area that we live in. And, you know, we had this little, uh, we made $500 a month. Remember that? 20 hours a week, $500 a month. I felt like a rich man until I realized that rent was 260 So I thought, you know, some things have never changed for the last 34 years. About 50% of my money goes to housing. Anyway, um, not quite that bad now. But it was very easy to think, oh, Lord, I'm just in this little, you know, two-bedroom apartment in the barrio. And then this is what would go on with me. I'd get whiny on this side. And then the Holy Spirit would go, you should be so grateful. You get to be in a great church. Yeah, but I don't live in a house. You haven't earned it yet. Yeah, but no but, you know. And I'd go arguing back and forth in my head. But the bottom line is, from a young age, Cheryl and I have cultivated this idea of being grateful. I'm going to be grateful for anything and everything God gives me. And I want to be content I don't want to be that pastor who's whiny and complaining. And I'm telling you, you're getting a good one in Scott. He's not a whiny, complaining kind of guy. He has been so blessed, and he's so excited to be here. No pretext for greed. Then the third thing that these unexamined life people have is they, they seek the glory of men, which we've kind of already uh, said. And Paul kind of alluded that. He says, hey, I could have asserted my authority. I could have... You know, the sages of his day claimed this, this right to rule because of all their wisdom. He, he didn't do that. So here's what I found. When we as pastors seek approval, applause, and attention, really that's revealing some insecurities in our own life. If someone's all about approval, applause, and attention, it kind of reveals our own insecurities. Now, that doesn't mean you can't give affirmation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if they're seeking it, that's a warning sign for us. Here's another little phrase. Praise by men is a poor substitute for pursuing God. Being praised by men is a very poor substitute for pursuing God. So William Barclay said it this way, when we pray, remember this. That the love of God that wants the best for us, pray for it. That the love of God that wants the best for us, we pray for the wisdom of God that knows what is best for us and the power of God that we can accomplish it. So the first two, he pleases God, not man. And number two, he permits himself to be examined. Verses seven and eight. Number three, proves his love by his actions. But we proved gentle among you as a nursing mother. He's going to go to this nursing mother family metaphor about how he felt for them. And anybody who's got a newborn, there is nothing more powerful than the love of a mother for her newborn child. And a mom is the one who kind of cares sacrificially for her kids, even when everybody else has abandoned that family. Mom is usually the one who's kind of the glue that holds it together. And so, if you want to evaluate how you love other people, he gives you a little three-point test again. By the way, every section here, there's like sets of three. 
Three, 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 all the way through. So he, there's, again, three more words describing that. How do you know if you're proving your love by your actions? Well, first of all, you're going to be what? According to the text, you're going to be gentle. You're going to be gentle. This idea of sheep need care, to be cared for. Cattle are the ones that get, are driven. That's why, thank goodness, God compares us uh, as we're looking at the Scriptures. You are sheep, not cattle. That is, that's a much better way to go. We don't want to be treated like cattle. Secondly, not only do we be gentle... He tenderly cares, all right? Tenderly cares. Uh, some of you maybe saw my Facebook post this week. I did a little shout-out tribute to one of my heroes from afar, Howard Hendricks. And he was a professor for 60 years at Dallas Seminary. But I'll never forget, he's, I believe he's the one who coined this phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's going to be proven by Scott and Adrian as they come. You may be impressed with his preaching and what he knows and where he's been and what he's done, but I can tell you for a fact, when it comes right down to it, ultimately he's going to win you over when your heart and his heart are knit together because you believe that he cares for you. Um, one of the beauties of being in this church is theoretically, a pastor can know every name for a while. I've been working on it for eight months, and I'm, I've, I've done pretty well, but I would have done a lot better had I had that pictorial directory eight months ago. <laughs> Just saying. But at least I got elders and wives' names paired up and staff and their wives, you know, and husbands and spouses paired up. I'm still working on some of the kids. But the bottom line is they tenderly care. And then thirdly, there's a fond affection. You say you care about people? Are you gentle? Are you tender? And is there fond affection? Is, is there a longing for one another? I hope you find that fond affection in your small group. I hope you're in a small group because that's where you get bonded in the church. We're already too big for everybody to know everybody. Some of you are new to church and you're just trying to find your way here. We need to get you plugged in where you will feel cared for, where you, there will be people who are gentle with you as you ask your questions and people will, you say, I, I want to hang out with that person. He proves his love by his actions. Next, verse 9. Fourth, we can expect from Scott that he will proclaim the gospel at any expense. Look at verse 9. Again, look at those words. Labor, hardship, working day and night, not to be a burning. We proclaim the gospel to you. Now, very interesting. The context of this is the false teachers of his day were asking for money, um, and these wandering philosophers were demanding that people support them financially. What did Paul do to earn his way in Thessalonica? He was what? He was a tent maker. He had a secular job to do that, and it cost him. Now, we are, there are some denominations today that take this very literally. The Plymouth Brethren do not have paid pastors. I do believe that they have missed the Scriptures personally. <clears throat> I'm glad that you pay your pastors. Um, but the bottom line, Paul didn't want to be a burden to them. And I believe that because of that, the Thessalonican church ultimately respected him because he was one of them. He was in the trenches. 
One of the things that I've had the privilege of doing for a number of years is besides always being a pastor, I've always had something else going on over here. And sometimes it was financially motivated, but a lot of times it was because I wanted to give back and be a volunteer just like, you know, you guys come and you do your job and you come here and volunteer. I wanted to volunteer outside the church. And I see that with our staff. You know, uh, John Nungester volunteers, I don't know if you know this, he's a uh, volunteer chaplain for the fire department. And he's got, he gets to do ministry outside this body when uh, there's been a death in the family. He just did a funeral recently. For me, I volunteer with a missions organization called Yugo Ministries, where we just took our team in Mexico. For eight years, I was a part of a team that spoke in public schools called the With Hope Foundation. And so, find that place, but the bottom line is that you proclaim the gospel, and you don't do it because you're being rewarded for it, because it's going to cost you. It will cost you to proclaim the gospel. And so, I believe the, the fine line here is we need to be biblically targeted as we preach, but we have to be culturally relevant. And that is a fine line because what some thinks is cultural relevance, another thinks is compromise. And the litmus test is not whether you like the illustration or not, but did it stay true to God's Word? So the gospel is a must, not a maybe. That's the principle coming out of this section. The gospel is a must, not a maybe. And I want to suggest to you it's hard work. Lost people don't come to faith easily. It's hard work. Secondly, it's risky work. What are we willing to risk for the gospel? It's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us our comfort. It may cost us our pride, and maybe someday it'll cost your life. And thirdly, it's a rewarding work. His ministry, Scott's ministry first and foremost, you need to hear this. It is a calling. It's not a job. We just don't do the, the pastor thing, oh, this is my current job. No, no, no. I remember when I was called to ministry. For me, that first call that I really believe God says, I, I want you to do something, I was in ninth grade. I was in ninth grade. And I had this unmistakable sense that God had a plan for my life. That's why I believe having you sit right here is so important because I think God is calling some of you to give your life to Him, not just to be a good student, not just to get married and have the American dream, not just to have the house with the 2.1 kids and, and a dog and a cat if, if you're twisted. Um, oh, sorry, cat lovers. But maybe God's calling you, one of you, to be a missionary, to be a pastor, to start a nonprofit, to deal something with people who, are, who don't have clean drinking water. I don't know what it is, but don't believe the lie that just going to school, don't go to school to get an education, go to school to make a difference. See your campus as a place to proclaim the gospel. And so I remember having this conversation with me and the Lord, and I said, okay, if I'm going to be a pastor, what do you do? How do you be a pastor? And I started volunteering. When I was in end of high school years, started volunteering in our junior high group started leading a little bad news bears group of, of kids that 
absolutely drove me nuts. <laughs> and then I decided I love junior hires, but I think high school is my thing. And so when I got into college, I was going to Biola, I, I, I played one year of baseball, and then God said, you know what, we're done with baseball. Ministry is where you're headed. And I got a couple of four high school guys. Some of you are going to go, serious, you did this to these four guys? Yeah, I did. The only time we could meet, they were all athletes, the only time we could meet was at 5.30 on Thursday mornings. For two years, we met at 5.30 on Thursday mornings during the school year. We loved when we got to summer vacation. We could move it till 9, 10, 11. And I discipled those guys. And I'm telling you, when you are committed to the gospel, it will cost you something. It'll cost your time. It'll cost you sleep. God's got a call on Scott's life. And I hope God has a call on your life. Number five, he should possess personal integrity. Look at verse 10. You are our witnesses, and so is God. How? Again, three more words, devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. You see, ultimately, God is the judge of his character, not us. We will see the fruits of his character, but God's the judge of that. And he says, devout integrity or godly integrity looks like this. There's a devoutness. There's a holiness. That's the relationship to God. Secondly, there's this uprightness. This is the relationship with other people. And then there's this blamelessness, this idea that you have this public reputation. Now, you may not know this, but the elders charged me with checking Scott's references. And I'm saying this publicly. I dug and I dug and I called and I called other people. And I got other people to give me names of other people. And I'm telling you, the guy is not perfect. But I can tell you, there is a blameless, there's above reproach about his character. And he'll prove it to you when he comes. But from all I can tell, we have a man who loves God deeply, and his family is in order. He's leaving his ministry well, and this is the next chapter of a long, long ministry career for him at ABF. His references checked out. They talked about him. I think about it's hard when someone is less than honorable and you have to give them a reference. It's very difficult. I, uh, I've had to write a lot of references, and so I thought I'd give you just a few tips, tongue-in-cheek, on how to give a reference for someone that you're not too high on. Here's how you do it without compromising your integrity. For instance, if the guy that is working for you is lazy, this is what you say. In my opinion, you'll be very fortunate to get this person to work for you. <laughs> It's still, it's still truth, it's still the truth. How about to describe a person who's totally inept? I most enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> or how about to describe an ex-employee who had problems getting along with his fellow workers? I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. We don't have to worry about that with Scott. He's above reproach. Number six, and finally, he points others 
towards a godly lifestyle. Verses 11 and 12. Again, do you see? Three more words. Exhorting, encouraging, imploring. So he went from the mother illustration to he goes to dads now, right? As a father would his own children. This concerned father, he pointed people towards a godly lifestyle. He uses the word exhortation. That's the idea of persuading or provoking. He uses the word encouraging. That's the idea of praising and pursuing people. And he uses the word imploring. That's about pushing and prodding. For some of you, think of it as the best coach you ever had. He got the most out of you. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stimulate or provoke or encourage one another to love and good deeds. Now, why does a pastor want to prod, push, poke, pray, persuade, point, and praise you? Because it says, why? So that you will what? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. He doesn't do that just to make you mad. He doesn't do that to push your buttons. He's going to persuade and provoke and praise and pursue and push and prod and point you towards God because we've got to walk like Christ followers. He's going to lead the way by His example. He's going to move us towards the goal of us becoming more like Christ. And so we got to ask ourselves when we leave every Sunday morning, what am I going to take from this sermon that will help me be more like Jesus this week? What will I do that will help me be an example of Jesus Christ to people who are far from God. And so as Chad comes, I want us to think in worship today about us. See, this has been a very easy message for us to kind of talk about Scott. This is what we expect from Scott. But why don't we change the title of the sermon? Not the man that God uses. How about the person that God uses? Take your own inventory. What of those six areas is God saying to you, I've got to do something about this? Just bow your heads, and I want you to think a little bit about your life. I'm going to ask you six questions. Do Do you please God first, or do you tend to be a man pleaser? Are you permitting yourself to be examined? Do you have accountability to someone who says, hey, what about this? Are you proving your love to others in the body here by your actions? Not just your talk, but by your actions. Are you willing to proclaim the gospel at any expense? How is your personal integrity? Do you possess that? Do people say, yes, he's credible? And ultimately, are you pointing others towards Jesus Christ? We can expect from Scott all we want, but I believe God expects a little bit from us as well. And next week, I'm going to give you what I believe Scott can expect from you as a church. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the freedom of ministry that we have. And I... I'm so grateful as we prepare for Scott and Adrian to come that, Lord, we are prayed up. 
that we are anticipating great things that you will do through them. And we will be your servants, humbly waiting on you to give us the direction and vision and all that you have in store for us in the days ahead. And so we want to follow you. We want to serve you. We want to be sold out. We want to be all in. So we give our lives to you anew again today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lord, that is our prayer. If we have decided to follow you, to be a Christ follower, to seek you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then, Lord, don't let us be lured by the world to turn back from our first love. And so today, as we leave, we are conscious of your presence with us, and we will be a conscious Christ follower this week. In Jesus' name, amen.